Today we're going to pick up, as I said, in verse 12. And the context of things is this. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, as we said, Jesus publicly identifies with really all of humanity in being baptized. And we saw that he went out into the Jordan River and he's baptized as a way of identifying with those that he came to save. And really a declaration that man will be saved by his death and resurrection. Then we saw in Matthew chapter 4, the first 11 verses of the chapter, that Jesus again identifies with humanity, this time by being tempted. And he's driven out into the wilderness and he's tempted and he withstands those temptations with the very same strengths and abilities that you and I have. He doesn't use miraculous powers. He doesn't call down lightning from heaven. But he's simply relying on and trusting in the Word of God is able to put Satan aside and to withstand the temptation. And so the context of things is Jesus is identifying with man. Now remember, Matthew, he sets out to write this book to demonstrate that Jesus is the coming Messiah. He's the Messiah that has come to save the world from their sin. And so he lays out this picture, and the whole purpose of this gospel is to get us to, at the end of this thing, ultimately to decide, you know what, he is the Messiah, and I'm going to follow him. Now Matthew doesn't, however, give us every single detail of Jesus' life. And so here in Matthew chapter 4, as we move into verse 12, actually there's a break from verse 12, 11 to verse 12. There's about a one year that takes place in between those two verses there. And we don't have any record of what happened in those verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the book of John tells us, actually John chapter 1 through John chapter 4, it tells us of a number of events, three chapters worth of material that happens during that one year coming out of the temptation. So things like the wedding at Cana, you recall that, Jesus turns the water into wine. That's during this time period. Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. John chapter 2, it's in this time period. He encounters that great account that he encounters that woman at the well. And he shares with her hope, John chapter 4. And so a lot of things are happening in between Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. And about a year of time goes by. Now if you look, let's read through the first five or six verses, starting in verse 12. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he being Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now verse 12 begins by informing us that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is arrested. Again, you can see that there in verse 12. And Jesus hears that John is arrested, and what does he do? Well, the passage says that he leaves. So they are there in the area of Judea, in the wilderness of Judea. Jesus hears that John is arrested, and he takes off. Now I hear that, and I think, nice buddy, what kind of a friend are you? You know, I'm in jail and you're going to just leave me or something like that and, and kind of run off. Well, John is arrested, and, and let me explain a little bit what's going on here. John is arrested by Herod. And we've already discussed there's a number of different Herods that are found in the Bible. And of course, the one that many of us are familiar with is Herod the Great. We looked at him in Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great is the one that kills all of the male children, the male boys there in the city, or the male boys, uh, there in the city of Bethlehem. He kills all the little boys that are there. Uh, in Bethlehem, that's Herod the Great. 
But Herod the Great has died. And his little kingdom has been divided amongst four of his relatives. Three of his sons and also one of his daughters. It just seems as if, uh, hey, you know what? I have nothing, money to give out. I'll, I'll give kingdoms. And he gives out kingdoms as inheritance to his family members. So we have a map here. And if you look at the map somewhere, there you go. What you'll see is, can you see the different colors that are listed there? Well, the green area he gives, that's the Judean wilderness. It's mostly desert area, but there's a couple of well-known cities there, towns there. He gives that to his son, Herod Archelaus. The sort of that pink area, is that what it looks like up there? Yeah, that pink area, Herod Antipas. You've heard that name, perhaps. Another one of his sons. Those two guys were direct brothers. He gives that to him. And you'll notice it's divided into two parts. I'm going to come back to that. You can see the orange area. That was given to a guy named Herod Philip II, another one of his sons, but by a different mother. And then you see down there in the bottom, that gray area, look down by where today the Gaza Strip is. He gives that to his sister. He shared a little bit with his sister, and her name was Salome. So he is dividing up his kingdom. So here now, when John is arrested, he's arrested by the fellow named Herod Antipas. So again, that's the guy who controls the pink area up there. And Antipas ultimately is going to have him executed. John executed as time will go on. So he's arrested, he's put in prison, and he's eventually executed. And again, I look at this and I think, Jesus, what are you doing? You can't run while I need you. And so I try and put myself sort of in the mindset of John. And quite frankly, it doesn't seem very Christian of Jesus to run off while his buddy needs him here, his cousin needs him here. But the reality of things is this. Jesus doesn't leave this area to get away and protect himself. If you notice up there here, I think, do we have the map with the circles and all that on there? So that's where they were initially. That's the wilderness area where the baptisms and things were taking place. Um, they go up. Go ahead. Give me the arrow there. They go up there. That's where Jesus goes back to the Galilee region. So he's still in Antipas's area. And as a matter of fact, Antipas made his home up in that region there. So he's really going into the, the den of the lion, if you will. And it's not as if Jesus is running for his life, but the reality is it's almost as Jesus is as if Jesus is saying, okay, here we go. This was an omen for what he himself was about to go through as well in a couple of years. John the Baptist is about to be executed. Jesus would also, as this ministry gets underway and a couple of years goes by, he too would be executed. So this isn't him running for his life but rather it's an embracing of God's plan, a further embracing of the mission that he would give his life on behalf of humanity. Now, let's just pause for a moment, though, and, and consider John. Because I wonder, sometimes I have these John experiences, and maybe you do as well, where you're wondering what Jesus is doing. So I suspect John, a very spiritual fellow, doesn't seem like he has a lot of cares or concerns in the world, eats locusts and things like that. This person who doesn't put a lot of thought into things, it seems. A locust will do. That'll satisfy. I never had a locust, and I can't imagine I ever would. But John is arrested, and he's put in jail. And I have a suspicion John is probably thinking, no problem. The Messiah has come. It's just a matter of time. He's going to come. He's going to break down the walls here, have an army with him. He'll rescue me. Perhaps, maybe, the, the prison break that he's going to do Maybe that'll be the catalyst to overthrow the Roman government and all of these things. And, and perhaps John is thinking, this is going to be great. And is that great ease there. Even though he's in the prison of a madman, he's at great ease because Jesus has come. But then Jesus' word filters to John that Jesus has left. And he's gone up into the mountains. He's thinking, hey, 
Where's the miracle? Hey, when are you coming to rescue me? God, what's going on? And do you think perhaps John maybe was a bit confused there? Wondering a little, trying to figure out what's going on. Maybe he felt even a bit betrayed. And then perhaps maybe fear began to settle in. Like, oh boy, I'm in the prison of a madman. And madmen do mad things, crazy things. And maybe John begins to get a little bit worried and, and nervous and concerned. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 11, it seems to indicate that John begins to have some doubts about Jesus as the Messiah. In, in the sense of, I thought you were coming to kind of start this thing. Get this whole kingdom going. What's going on here, God? And so word is sent over to Jesus through some of his disciples, and Jesus responds to that. But the point is this, that God is in all of these things. But that doesn't necessarily make it any easier on John, does it? And so we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in all of these things. But things happen in our lives, and we begin to wonder, and we begin to say, God, what are you doing? And God, you didn't ask, but I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have recommended some other way. So God, I don't understand. And sometimes it's very hard, and sometimes it's very difficult. I remember when I got out of college, I, I went to college to become a school teacher. Worked hard, got a B, average, you know, that sort of thing. It wasn't that, it's not that impressive. As, uh, as I can see, nobody here seems to be impressed. But anyhow, I worked hard, you know, I, I got this degree. My mom always said, you know, she never went to college. My dad never went to college, that sort of thing. She always said, you're going to go to college, and you're going to work hard, and you're going to be successful. And so I did it, and, she pro and what she always used to say, I think I told you guys this, she always say, look, if you don't do this, you're going to become a ditch digger. And I don't want to be a ditch digger. You know, that sounds hard, especially as you start getting older in life or whatever. So I went off to college and I got my degree and I came out of college and I didn't get a job. And a month went by and that's okay, it's summer. Nobody's in school, nobody's thinking. And then next thing you know, it's September. And then it's October, I'm seeing the school buses go by and for the first time in whatever, 21 years, I'm not going off to school. And it's like, Lord, what's going on here? And so I was just picking up jobs to make a little bit of money here and there and one day I was on the side of the road, I was working for a mason, and we were laying a sidewalk, and I was digging a ditch on the side of the road. And I thought to myself, God, and I was, I was really struggling with the Lord. You know, you, it was long before like Walkman and things you could listen to, so I had to just listen to my thoughts. And those thoughts turned to prayers, and those prayers turned to God, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not happy here. Lord, I went to school, I did what I was supposed to do, I followed my mom's instructions, and now I'm digging a ditch and all this stuff. And I was really bothered by it. But, you know, one thing led to another. I applied for a job. I was going to be an athletic director of a uh, youth organization. And now I thought, that's great. I like athletics. I like youth. I have a teacher background. This, Lord, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be like that. I apologize. You're so smart and all this stuff. So I went to the interview, and the interview went great. And the guy's like, I really like you. He said, you know, you bring like, whatever. And he's telling me all these things he's like. So I go home and I'm like, God, you're so amazing. I can't believe you worked it all out. And then about, I don't know, a day later or a few hours later, I get a phone call and he says, hey, we really like you, but we decided to go with someone else. I said, Lord, what are you doing? And I was mad at the Lord. You know, and, and I was early on in my walk with the Lord. I was probably in the Lord about three, four years. And I learned how to pray honestly at that time. Because he knows your heart anyway, doesn't he? And so I learned how to, at that time to say, you know what, Lord, I just don't like what you're doing. And I'm struggling with liking you right now, to be honest with you. But Lord, I'll trust. I'll trust you. 
And then a few months later, I got a job as a teacher working in Ewing, and, and it, it turned out to be the perfect job, uh, quite frankly. And so the Lord knew what he was doing, but that doesn't make it any easier, does it? And so here's John the Baptist in jail, fully expecting probably Jesus to come in and rescue him, and Jesus doesn't. As a matter of fact, Jesus leaves. And John perhaps thinking, God, what are you doing? And so Jesus, he heads back up into the Galilee. Look at verse 13 there. It says, when he gets up into that region, it says, and leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, if you think of the area of Galilee as if it were the face of a clock, the center of that clock would be the Sea of Galilee itself, and then scattered all around the clock would be these cities. And some of those cities go further inland than others. Not all of them are right there on the coast. But it was a very populated area up there in Galilee. It's a beautiful area even today. And hopefully you'll have an opportunity to go with us when we go there. It's just a, a magnificent place. They're very peaceful very restful. But in that day, it was very, very populated. It's estimated that there were 204 cities in the area of the Galilee and that the average population of those cities was about 15,000 people. So a million, a million or so people live up in that area. And Jesus, as we saw in the passage, he goes to Nazareth. And I think we had the map. You can see that there. Nazareth is Jesus's hometown, you may recall. So it would make sense for him to sort of go back to his hometown there, but he doesn't stay there very long. And as you see in the verse, it, leaves, it says he leaves and he goes to the Capernaum. Now, the reason isn't given in Matthew why he, le why he leaves Nazareth, but he leaves Nazareth to go to Capernaum because of an event that happened. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. You can read about it, verses 16 through 30. But there, as Jesus is preaching to his hometown people, people he went to elementary school with and high school and all these things with, he begins to make claims as to who he is. And the people, they begin to hear what he says, and they essentially start saying things like, who's this guy think he is? He's the kid from around the block down the corner. That's the carpenter's son. Does he really think we are naive enough to think that he could be the Messiah? And Jesus, in, in preaching to them, speaking to them, he recognizes the hardness of his heart, their hearts, I should say, and he makes a statement to them about taking this message and presenting it to the Gentiles, and that makes them furious. And so it says they take him and they bring him to the edge of a cliff. And we go to, to a cliff there in Nazareth. I don't know if it was the right one or actual one, but you get the idea. And it says as if they were going to throw him off the cliff, but that's not the way that Jesus is going to die. And so Jesus passes, it says, through them somehow, and he gets out of there. And it's at that point that Jesus leaves Nazareth, as it says in the passage that a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And so Jesus leaves there and he heads to this town of Capernaum. Notice what it says in verse 14. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And I've been pointing this out as we've been moving through the book of Matthew, that this is now about the seventh time that we have a phrase like that, like this, that where it says, so this would fulfill, or this was in fulfillment of, or something like that. This is now the seventh time that we have Matthew who's writing to Jews to convince them that Jesus is the long-promised Jewish Messiah, that Matthew will go back to the Old Testament, the Jewish book, and say, look, here's an evidence that he is the Jewish Messiah. And here he quotes from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, and it says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It says, people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them, a light has dawned. 
Now, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the tribes of Israel. So you remember the 12 tribes of Israel. And when the 12 tribes of Israel, when they came into the promised land, as Joshua, Moses led them up to, Joshua led them in to the promised land, that land, the land of Canaan originally, was divided up amongst the 12 tribes. And two of those tribes that got land up in the north were Zebulun and Naphtali. And we have a picture to give you an idea. Zebulun is up there. It's kind of in like a blue color. Naphtali is kind of in a yellow color there. In that area, large number of Jews in the time of Jesus, they make their home up there in this city of Capernaum. But primarily, that area was Gentile. So a lot of Jews that are living up there, but primarily it is a Gentile area. And from sort of a political standpoint, Jesus going to Capernaum doesn't make a whole lot of political sense. If Jesus were running to be, get elected as the Jewish Messiah, then he would have probably wanted to go down to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is where all the Jewish movers and shakers are. You wouldn't, if you want to be the Jewish Messiah, you don't go to a Gentile city or a Gentile area. But Jesus does. And notice again, as the passage says, he goes to the Galilee of the Gentiles. This area was commonly referred to, particularly by those that live down in the south, down near Jerusalem. This area is prom- uh, commonly referred to as the region of death. This area became sort of a buffer zone between the, um, the, the continents that were north of it, whether that be what we call Europe or Asia or those areas, and the area down there of Jerusalem. It became sort of this buffer zone. So whenever those places were going to come to attack Jerusalem, They were always going to go through Galilee of the Gentiles first. And so it became this buffer zone, this region of death there. And I think that's what Isaiah is speaking of when he refers to it as this shadow of death. This area of the Gentiles. Now Jesus, throughout his ministry, primarily ministered to Jews. His disciples would be the ones that would ultimately bring that message to the Gentiles. But Jesus primarily ministered to Jews. But his presence in this region, amongst this, all of these Gentiles, meant he was going to have encounters with the Gentiles. And plenty of those that he had encounters with responded to his ministry and came to know him as Savior. But here's Jesus now. He goes into this dark, superstitious, fallen people, and to those people a great light appears. And he appears preaching hope and forgiveness and cleansing. And there in the Galilee of the Gentiles, Jesus settles in and he begins his march toward the cross where he's going to give his life on behalf of many. A dark, superstitious people. Jesus didn't come and seek out and save a religious people. And if you think you are a religious person, if somebody thinks they are, well, I'm a religious person. Well, quite frankly, Jesus has nothing to offer to you. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus didn't come to give us self-help principles. He didn't come to give us some steps so we could be highly successful at this or that. Jesus didn't come to establish a religion that would rival all of the great religions of the world. Jesus came to save sinners. And I think it's significant that he sets up shop, if you will, in the shadow of death amongst the Gentiles, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Right there in the midst of sin and death, he takes on death that you and I might live. Speaking to another crowd, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so he settles in Galilee of the Gentiles. Look at verse 17. From that time, 
Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? Turn to your neighbor and say, That sounds familiar. So I could get a drink. It sounds familiar because it's the same words that John the Baptist said. You recall when John the Baptist began his ministry? Same words. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who knew that Jesus stole his sermons from other people? But here is Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, Antipas, remember him? Herod Antipas put John in jail. He thought he could silence the message by putting the messenger in prison. But the message can't be silent, can it? And so the message goes forth. I like what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, evil may silence a voice, but it cannot prevent the proclamation of the word. And I think that's an encouragement in our day, certainly, as we've seen a resurgence of persecution around the world. You know, there's a lot of talk in America about persecution that's happening here in America. Maybe. I don't think it compares, however, to some of the things we're seeing around the world. You know, even today, just today, I should say, Pastor Saeed Abedini is in prison in Iran. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor. And many of you have heard his story. And we have a prayer meeting for him next Monday night, the 28th, uh, that we're traveling up to, to participate in. But he's a fellow that is in prison for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's in a terrible prison, quite frankly. But even there in prison, he tells his wife, he communicates with his parents, they, his, they're Iranian, they get to visit him from time to time. He communicates with them. And in doing so, what he says to them is, you know what, even in here, and this place stinks and I can't wait to get out of here, I want to get out of here. He says, but the gospel's going forth. And people are being converted. And so they lock this guy up because he's preaching the gospel. But the gospel itself can't be locked up. The gospel continues to go forward as, as we have example even in our day today. And there's Jesus bringing forth the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, let's go on. Let's look at verse 18. Let me read up through 22. It says, Now while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew is, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Well, let's take... Let's go right through those verses. Verse 1, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, also known as Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. Now, we don't exactly know who Annette is, but apparently Andrew and Peter are having some trouble with her. As you can see, they're throwing her into the sea. Did you catch that? Some of you are like, I should have brought a Bible. Anyhow, um, never mind. Let's move on. Actually, this, I love this passage here. This, this is a passage that has spoken to my, to my heart in my life a number of different times, actually repeatedly in my life. It reminds me of that song that Stephen Curtis Chapman did. Those of you that are older, you might know, like my age older. Uh, empty nets lying there at the water's edge. All they knew for sure that Jesus was called to him. And he talks about this idea of surrendering. It's a great song. Um, you should look it up. Anyhow, let's move on. Uh, Jesus here now begins calling people to be his disciples. Now a disciple is a learner. And in that day, it referred to a person that would attach themselves to a rabbi and pretty much follow that rabbi around everywhere that the rabbi went. And they would do that so that they would be ready. 
Because at some point in time, the rabbi was going to have a teachable moment and he was going to say, hey, guys, did you see that over there? Let me tell you something about that. And so they would go with that guy wherever he went so that they would always be ready to receive from them. And so here now Jesus is inviting Andrew and Peter and then James and John to be his disciples. He would be their rabbi. And he would begin to walk and they would begin to follow him. Now in the context of Matthew, it seems as if, it's like, hi, nice to meet you. Come follow me. And be, you know, like, who are you? You know what I mean? I'm not going to follow you. But the reality is we know that these guys had met Jesus almost a year earlier. And these guys had seen Jesus kind of sharing some things here and doing some things over there. And so this isn't his first encounter with these guys. He had met them, he had interacted with them in a number of different places. And what I find to be interesting, I think if somebody were to say to them, hey, what do you guys think about Jesus? You're a follower of Jesus? Even before this encounter, they would have probably said, oh yeah. Oh yeah, I like that Jesus guy. He's pretty cool. He's amazing, actually. He's down to earth. He says things and I just get what he's saying. And these guys would have almost been offended if you said, no, but you're not a follower of his. You just like him. You're interested in him. And these guys were interested in Jesus. They were intrigued by Jesus. But Jesus is calling them to be more than intrigued. And Jesus is calling them to leave all of these things and to come after him and follow him. You know, in our day, in the context of our day, Jesus is not interested in Facebook friends. And he's not interested in Twitter followers. But Jesus is not interested in people that are just loosely affiliated with him or mildly interested in him. But rather, what Jesus is doing is he's calling these would-be followers to lay everything down and become his disciples. Look down for a moment. Look down at chapter 5, verse 1. You see what it says there? It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. You see, the one whose curiosity has been piqued, they'll mill about when Jesus is in the vicinity. They'll sort of kind of perk up a little bit. They'll raise their ears so that it can listen a little bit. But the disciple is the one that goes up on the mountain so that they can be taught by him. And that's what Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew and James and John to do. And so this statement to them is essentially, look, you've demonstrated interest, but now I'm calling you to something deeper. And so here are four ordinary guys that go off to work one day, and without any warning, they find themselves face to face with the radical call to abandon it all and become Jesus' disciple. You know, I think about that particular day. What made that day any different from the hundreds of other days that they did the exact same thing? Got up, kind of groggy, grabbed a cup of coffee, schlepped down there to the, to the sea, and began to do what they had to do. There's nothing different about the day. But it was on this day that the undeniable call to them came. Where Jesus said to them, do you want to lay down your life today and take up my life instead? Do you want to be my disciple? And so here are these guys, the normal order of their day, Jesus calls to them and he says, come, follow me. And I think there's a variety of ways that we can apply this Scripture to our lives today. Certainly, I think there's application that Jesus is calling all of us to something more. For some of us here, we may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We know about Him. We've heard about Him. 
we've listened to him teach, so to speak. We've been to church or, or different things like that. But we ourselves don't have a relationship with him. And so I think the first application is simply this. Jesus is saying, hey, I'd like to invite you to lay down your life and to take up my life and to become be my disciple. And so if you're not a believer yet in Jesus Christ, your application is this. Jesus is calling me to confess him as my Savior and Lord. But for those of you, most of you probably are here, you've given your life to Christ at some point in time or another, I think there's an additional application for us. And that is this, that milling about at the bottom of the hill, that it just won't do. That Jesus is saying, look, if you want to go deeper with me, then you need to make the trek up the hill. You know, see, in the context of Peter, they have all of these nets. And you know, sometimes nets in our lives, nets can entangle us, can't they? They can lock us down. They can keep us in place preventing us from going any further. And essentially, like he said to these men, he might say something like this to you, you need to lay down those nets. You need to put aside those things, as it talks about in Hebrew, Hebrews, that so easily ensnare you and entangle you so that you can, in an unhindered way, follow after me. And so maybe that's an application for you. And that was an application in my life as I looked at this passage over the years. But there was another instance I looked at this passage and God spoke a different thing to my heart. And that was specifically the call to ministry. I was a believer. Some of you here, you're a believer. You're an Andrew, a Peter, a John. You believed in Christ. You're doing what you're supposed to do. You're hard at work each day. You're having your devotional times. You're nice to people. When the opportunity arrives, you tell them about Jesus and you try and point them to Jesus. But maybe even in that, you've been sensing a call to leave your fishing nets and to follow the call to ministry. I was called to full-time ministry back in 2007. And maybe some of you here are being called into full-time ministry. I'd encourage you to say yes. Now, some of you might hear that and you say, you know, that's not for me. My response to you would be, it better be. If you call yourself a disciple, then there's no place to say no. And so if you can say, Lord, that would be hard. You've got to help me. But you can't say no because the disciple doesn't say no. Maybe some of you are being called into full-time ministry. But let me also point this out. Because I don't want to give the impression that we have these folks over here that do ministry, and then we have these folks over here that we come to church. Because I would suggest to you that all of us are called into full-time ministry. But there are some that earn their living from that. But all of us are called to full-time ministry. Each one of us is called to serve as the Lord directs. Each one of us is called to lay down our lives as He provides opportunity. And each one of us is called to minister as the circumstances dictate. Now some of us here are going to hear that today and you'll say, that's not for me. I'm not interested in laying down my life. My life is my life. And I'm not interested in that call. Honestly, I pray for you. Because Jesus said if you would save your own life, you'll lose it. But if you would lose your life for his sake, then you will find life. And so I pray for you if that's your heart. But there's probably others of us here, and we hear this call to ministry, and we think something like this, well, surely that call can't be for me. We think, look, I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a school teacher. I'm just a housewife. Obviously, that call can't be for me. And if that resonates with you, then I would draw your attention. Look back again at verse 19 and take notice of who it is 
that's going to enable them for the work that they're being called to do. So look at verse 19. Jesus says, and I will make you fishers of men. There's an expression that the, the calling of God is the enabling of God. And so you may think that you're not skilled enough or educated enough or capable enough, but if God is calling you to it, then He will skill you, He will qualify you, He will educate you, and He will enable you. And quite frankly, I think you could make a case in the Scripture that the people that God typically uses are those that are otherwise unqualified to be used. So David was a shepherd boy, not a prince when he became king, went on to become a king. Amos was a farmer when God called him to prophesy. Matthew was collecting taxes and went on to be a disciple. Andrew and Peter, as we see, are casting their nets. It's with rare exception that God uses someone that is perfectly qualified with all the right credentials. Somebody like the Apostle Paul, for instance. Perfectly qualified, all the right credentials, perfect for the job. If we can just win Paul, we can accomplish great things. But do you know what's interesting about the book of Acts? Here's Paul, perfectly qualified to minister to the Jewish people when he gets saved. And what does God do? He sends him to the Gentile people. You see, sadly, when a person is perfectly qualified, or at least they believe they are, they don't need to depend upon the Lord very much, do they? It's when a person has no idea what they're doing, I'm describing myself, when they're desperately wishing, and I cannot tell you how many times in ministry that I have desperately wished that God would send somebody else to go do what I was being asked to do. It's when we're desperately dependent for God to do what, that's when God has to do what God said He would do. He has to show up and He has to make us fishers of men. So if you feel you're unqualified, good. That's great. That's the perfect place you want to be. Now let God work through you and do amazing things. And so He calls these guys to be fishers of men and, and certainly there's a strategic play on their occupations. These guys are fishermen, so I'm going to make you fishers of men. I suspect if He was talking to a doctor, He would have used a different analogy. He would have said something like, you know, you make people physically well, but I'm going to call you to make people spiritually well. He would have used an analogy that resonated with them. The point is simply this. Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to take you and all those things that you have been doing day in and day out, and I'm going to turn those skills into service for the kingdom of God. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, I also want to draw your attention. Notice what exactly it is that Jesus is calling them to. Again, Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we have to notice the order of things there. First, Jesus says, follow me. Then go do ministry. First things first. First, follow me. Then we'll discuss serving me. Jesus isn't calling them to a principle. He's not calling them to a religion. As I said, He's not calling them to self-help principles. And He's not seeking to hire a bunch of employees. He doesn't have some plan for how he's going to reach the whole world and these guys fit into that plan or something like that. He's not hiring a bunch of employees. He's calling people to become intimately connected to him. And then from the overflow of what God is doing in their hearts, then ministry will come. And so I encouraged some folks last night with this. 
If you're serving the Lord in any capacity, worship leader, pastor, youth leader, staff worker, mom or dad, just trying to minister to your kids on a daily basis, Sunday school teacher, we need to keep this order of things at the forefront of our thinking. You're called to be a follower, then a minister. And if you fail to follow Him, then you're not going to have anything of which to minister to people. So follow Him. Anyone called to do the work of the Lord has to first be a disciple of the Lord. Follow me, then fishers of men. Well, let's finish up the text, 21 and 22. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and uh, John, his brother, the, the sons of Zebedee. And they're in the boat with their dad, mending their nets, and Jesus called to them. And immediately they left their nets. And so, a little further up the beach there, he comes across two more guys, James and John. And he calls them. And just like Andrew and Peter, all of those questions that Andrew and Peter were faced with, they're going to be faced with. Do I really want to do this? Am I really up for laying down my life? Am I capable to do what it is I'm being called to do? All of those difficult questions that Andrew and Peter had to deal with, these guys are going to have to deal with. They're going to have to count the cost in that moment there and make their decision. But what I want to draw your attention to in these final verses of our uh, time together here is the response of their father, Zebedee. That doesn't really tell us what happened here, but I think the implication is such. Because here is Jesus calling to James and John and they're out there mending their nets. And no doubt, when the word goes out, all of their attention, James, John, Zebedee, all of their attention is up to the shore. And there's Jesus on the shore. And he's saying to James and John, I want you to come follow me. And no doubt, they glanced over at their dad to see what their dad would think about this call. And their dad could have said, no, nobody's going anywhere. These young boys, they got work to do. They're staying right here. You can go at night. You know, it's time... It, for serious things. These are men. They don't have time to be running around following after some miracle worker or some teacher. And their dad could have squashed it right there. And perhaps James and John would have said, well, I don't care what you say, Dad. I'm going anyway. If they were teenagers, probably that's what they would have said. Uh, or they would have said, you're right, Dad. And they would have stayed there. And so I suspect when they glance over at their dad that their dad just sort of gave them a little bit of a head nod. And said, go, boys. I'll take care of everything here. Moms and dads, Jesus' call to you might be to let your kids go. And that's a hard thing, isn't it? Because as moms and dads, we have hopes for our kids. We have dreams for them. We have a vision for what their life is going to look like. And it's hard for us to entrust them to Jesus, isn't it? And we have to pray, Lord, do whatever you want with their lives. You know, sometimes it's harder to stay back while your kids go forward. And I think many times it takes more faith to stay back and trust that Jesus knows what He's doing with them than it is to be the one actually going. That's exciting. All right, where are we going? This is great. Sometimes it's harder to stay back. As some of you no doubt have experienced. So whether you're the one that is sent out 
or you're the one that is staying back, I'd like you to notice one last thing about responding to the call. Look at verse 21. It's also in verse 20. But look at verse 21. It says, immediately they left their boat. You see, and I think that's key. Because when Jesus calls, you need to respond to Him immediately. Because if you put it off for a bit, you will likely put it off indefinitely. And so let the words of the psalmist, we're going to end with this, let the words of the psalmist, let them exhort you as you consider the Lord's call in your, li- in your life. This is from Psalm chapter 95, verse 8. It says simply this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond immediately is what it means. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for the Word. And we thank You for the call. Lord, You do call to us, don't You? Lord, and, and not just once, actually. Again and again and again as You take us further and further along in this journey, this walk with You. And, and Lord, we delight in that. But we also admit sometimes it's challenging and difficult for us. And everything in our flesh kind of wants to rebel against that. But again, Lord, we're reminded just of the truth of that verse that if you lay down your life, that's when you'll truly find life. And so, Father, I think of that father that said, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Lord, we pray that same thing for us, Lord. Your Holy Spirit, no doubt, has been putting things on our hearts this morning and even in the days leading up to this morning. And so, Lord, we pray for the courage to respond in obedience to where it is you might be leading us. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.